Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by New Jersey Institute of Technology. NJIT makes industry-ready professionals in all STEM fields. PSENG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. The New Jersey Economic Development Authority. New Jersey Sharing Network. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Choose New Jersey. Fedway Associates, Inc. Operating Engineers, Local 825. And by St. Joseph's Health. World-class care, just around the corner. Promotional support provided by NJ.com. Keeping communities informed and connected. And by Insider NJ. I'm Steve Adubato, and we kick off this program with a very important interview with United States Congressman Andy Kim, who represents the 3rd Congressional District, most of Burlington County and parts of Ocean County. Congressman, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Steve. Congressman, we have you on for a variety of reasons, but I want to just confirm something. As part of our New Jersey Leaders Who Matter initiative, you are the first Asian-American lawmaker to represent um, New Jersey in Congress. Is that true? That's right, I am. Yeah, I, I am the first uh, elected from New Jersey. I'm the youngest Asian-American elected federal office in the country. Mm. And your background before Congress? Uh, I worked in diplomacy and national security at the State Department, the White House, and the Pentagon. So let's get right into it, particularly given your background. You know, um, in a few, just a few minutes, we're going to show the iconic, for all the wrong reasons, photo, uh, photos of you cleaning up the rotunda floor after the riots, the insurrection of January 6th, but we're also going to show some video just to remind people. People say, I've seen it enough. Have you? I'm not sure. Describe what was going on that day for you, what you saw, what you felt. You know, it's, it's as you, you know, we were talking, I come from a national security background, you know, I had a chance to work in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I've been in lockdown situations and shelter-in-place situations before. But you know, just never imagined in my wildest dreams that we would have anything remotely like that at the United States Capitol. You know, to have a situation, I remember, you know, when we were, I was, uh, you know, here hiding away, trying to figure out what was going on. I received an email uh, from the Capitol Police describing the situation. And what they described was, you know, that, that we should not be going anywhere near the Capitol building and said, because we have lost control over the building. And... You know, it was just such a surreal moment to, to understand what they were saying there, that, that, that for a period of time, we have lost control over the United States Capitol building, that, that the United States government did not have control over this most sacred of the buildings. And, and that's what happened on that day. It, it's not something that we should ever forget. And it's something that we should all dedicate ourselves to never allowing happen again. That should be something that people across the political spectrum should be able to agree upon. Yeah, by the way, I want to show the uh, picture of the congressman cleaning up the rotunda floor um, after the riots, which now is over at the Smithsonian National Museum of History. Yes, for uh, your blue suit and the artifact 
uh, and other artifacts connected to that day. Uh, yeah, beyond the historical significance, what, what would you say to those who say, come on, because I've talked to friends and others, and we've done programming on January 6th, and we've been, I've been obsessed with this series we've been doing called Democracy at a Crossroads. And I'm like, you, you see we're at a crossroads, right? Like, you see that the rule of law about elections and people decide that they won no matter what the courts say, no matter what the Electoral College says. And it's not my job to editorialize here, but I have, there are a fair number of people who watch right now who are like, come on, not that big a deal, you say? Well, look, for me, you know, when I got that request from the Smithsonian uh, to, to, to have my blue suit, uh, you know, I was, I was wondering about it. I was like, why, why this suit? You know, this is an ordinary suit. Um, and what I came to understand is that that they were asking for it, not because of any accomplishment on my behalf. I do not consider myself to have done anything extraordinary that day. What I did was not brave nor heroic. So this was not because of an accomplishment. The Smithsonian is not like the Hall of Fame or anything like that. They're, they asked for the suit because I was a witness to a tragic day. That suit tells a particular story. It is one of many things and objects and people that tell that story. So my story is not unique. It is not the only one that's there. But it is part of this story about not just what happened that day and the fact that our building of this beautiful building, of this temple of our democracy was defiled and, and, and desecrated that day. But it's also about what comes next. How do what does come next, that? Congressman? What comes next? What, what comes next is, is our country decided whether or not we are going to move away from this dangerous trajectory that we're on right now. We are on an unsustainable trajectory when it comes to hyperpartisanship, when it comes to uh, our combativeness and our toxicity in our politics. So this question is, are we going to get off of that trajectory? Are we going to try to meaningfully change the way that politics operates within our nation or not? And I don't, you know, I, I don't have the answers for you right now. I think that is something that we as a nation are trying to deal with. And try Stay to right there, Congressman. Stay right there. A very close friend of mine who's a very smart attorney said to me the other day, I mean, it's a really close friend. He said, Steve, you don't understand. We have to pick sides. And I said to him, and I'm not going to say his name, what sides are you talking about? He goes, whose side are you going to be on? And I said, well, we're Americans. He goes, no, no, I don't mean that. He goes, which side are you going to be on in this war? And he meant a war between those who are, quote, with Donald Trump and whatever that means and those who are not. And he ultimately believed that it was that we were heading toward, and I'm not an alarmist in that way, but we we're heading towards something terrible. And I said, what about people who are in between? Uh, people who are I'm not going to say what people's ideology is, but that they want to work together. And he said, it's impossible. I, what do we tell our kids? It's work things out in school, find a way to compromise, find a way to negotiate. Nope. Go into your corner and demonize each other. Am I over-exaggerating what it's like down there in Congress? Well, look, the, the environment that, that you're describing is very often what we see in terms of toxicity here, but that doesn't mean that we have to accept that premise. I disagree that it has to be binary. I disagree that our politics have to be based off of personalities. I, for one, believe that I am a part of, and all of us are a part of, something that's bigger than all of us. And we should not be pledging allegiance to any single individual 
We should or be a party, so that he or the, to the say. Democrats, or to Nancy Pelosi, or I, to Donald I, I, Trump, I or Joe Biden. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, the question then is, is you know, how do we anchor ourselves? And, and I think that that's why, for me, you know, as someone, you know, I worked as a career public servant. I told you I worked in government before, but I was a nonpartisan government employee. There is a way to anchor ourselves in service. There is a way that we can anchor ourselves in that kind of patriotism that doesn't have to be so overtly political. And I know it sounds cheesy, but it's possible. Even with Republicans not participating in the investigation as to what happened on January 6th, they're like, no, we're not, we're moving on. And that's not editorializing, that's a fact. They said, no, we don't wanna go there. We don't wanna participate. So frankly, it is not bipartisan. Yes, Liz Cheney's on it, I get it. It's not bipartisan, Congressman. And it's gonna be seen as not bipartisan. Oh, that's absolutely right. And look, we have uh, certainly an assault on the truth. We have a level of disinformation in our country that is eroding us from the inside. It's hollowing us out. If we cannot at least agree upon a shared truth, what chance do we have to be able to heal? What chance do we have to be able to move forward? So you're right, though. This is something that, uh, sadly, that we've gone to this state. where we Give have me a silver lining. I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, give me some silver lining, please. Well, look, silver lining is that we have uh, a lot of Americans that are engaged. You know, we have the, the highest turnout in, in American history this last election. We had the highest turnout, even about 100,000 more people in my congressional district voted in 2020 than they did in the previous presidential election in 2016. And the silver lining is that I see young people in my district engaged in ways that I certainly was not when I was their age. That is hopeful for me. You know, and, and so I believe that we are a resilient nation. I believe we have a lot of bend before we break, and we've seen a lot of problems in the past, but we have to recognize what gives us that resilience, and that resilience comes off of that commitment of service and that recognition that we are part of something bigger than us. It's about humility, not hubris. So that is what I hope we can restore our anchoring. Help me understand, in terms of discrimination and the attacks against the Asian American community, how much worse is it today than it was a year ago, two years ago, five years ago? A and B, what does it have to do with COVID? Yeah, well, one thing I wanna say is that the discrimination has existed before COVID, it'll exist after COVID, so this is not just you know because of what we've seen over the last year, but that being said, this is the worst I've ever seen it in my lifetime in terms of just outright open discrimination and racism, the fear of violence in the Asian American community, especially with our elders who have been targeted and attacked all across this country, uh, that is visceral. And that fear is so um, potent right now. Um, so it, it is alarming. And yes, we've gotten a lot of attention from across the country, and that's important, shining a light on what exactly we're talking about. But it's something that I worry, how do we sustain that and how we turn that into real action? Let me ask you, do you feel a particular responsibility being, as it relates to the issues we're talking about, discrimination against the Asian American community, um, being the first Asian American to serve in the congressional delegation in New Jersey and one of the first federal officials, if you will, of Asian American background, do you feel a particular responsibility? And if so, what is it? I do feel a responsibility in terms of giving a voice to a community that I think has not been able to get its voice heard as much as others have. And, 
and have not been able to tell that story. Especially here in New Jersey, we have such a large and vibrant and beautiful and dynamic Asian American community. We have one of the largest Asian American communities in the entire country. And uh, right now, they're scared and they're hurting and they're fearful about what happens next. So part of it is about me being an Asian American legislator, but all, part of it is also about me being a dad. You know, I grew up in this state and I got two baby boys. I got a, one that just turned four and another that's five. And I'm thinking about what kind of state, what kind of country are they gonna grow up in? You know, am I gonna have to worry about any discrimination or violence against them? I wanna give them everything that they deserve and I wanna have that peace of mind. And me as a United States Congressman, I do not have that peace of mind about my own kids, about their future. That's not something that we should be able to have to worry about in the richest, most powerful country in the world, in one of the you know, most powerful and, and dynamic, prosperous states in the country. New Jersey should be able to provide that. America should be able to provide that. So I, I approach this both as a dad as well as a congressman. Congressman, let me ask you this. Um, the biggest lesson you have learned as a top federal official in Congress as it relates to COVID, and particularly in a district like yours, that is not overly congested, that is spread out, that is down the Jersey Shore and in Burlington County as well. Um, biggest lesson you've learned, A, and B, what concern do you have for your constituents as we do this program at the end of July 2021? You know, biggest lesson I've learned is about making sure that we have that clear and constant communication with the, the district. Uh, one thing that we've been very successful is, you know, we had an email list that we started uh, at the beginning of COVID with zero people on that email list. It is now up to, I think, 30 or 40,000 people in my congressional district uh, that is getting information on a daily basis, weekly basis. It's just the facts, giving people an understanding of, of where to go for more information and engaging. Um, that was one of the most successful things that we've done. So, you know, I think we need to make sure that we continue to find ways to, to communicate in that clear way. And in terms of concerns about what comes next, a lot of my concerns right now are on small businesses. I'm on the Small Business Committee in Congress. I'm the only uh, congressional member from New Jersey on the Small Business Committee, so I've made it a personal mission of mine. I'm very worried about what comes next. And if I'm worried about it, the owner, these small business owners and workers, they're even more concerned. So we gotta make sure we're focused on that and, and giving them every shot to be able to come out of this hopefully stronger than they went in. Uh, by the way, real quick, food insecurity, an issue that matters to you greatly, right? Yeah, hugely. I'm, I'm so worried about hunger issues in our district. I was worried about this before COVID. Before COVID, we had an estimated, what was it? I think 16,000 kids in the New Jersey 3rd Congressional District that were considered food insecure, which is just a fancy way of saying hungry. Um, so, you know, this is even worse. The number of calls that I've gotten from folks that, you know, just never had to face this question. I've had people, they, they're, they're so, they're breakdown crying on the phone because they never in their life thought that they'd have to ask where they can go for a food pantry you know, where they can go to, to get a, a, a helping hand and a meal. These are people that are, are, have pride, they have jobs, they never thought they'd get there. So this is something we need to focus on. I mean, food is just a basic necessity. We should all be able to agree, nobody in the richest, most powerful country should go hungry. Yeah, Congressman, this is the fourth time I've said it's a final question, but they keep telling me I got another minute with you. So I'm gonna take advantage. You have a military base, uh, McGuire, not just a military base, it's a very important one over in down in Burlington County. I say down because I'm up in North Jersey. 
what there's so many things going on around the world. Our military is so engaged in so many situations, both domestically and around the world. Support for military members at this time that, who have got to be overworked and exhausted is a gross understatement. What's your message to them? Uh, first of all, I say thank you for your service. You know, at this time, more than ever, you know, we have to, to support those that are fighting for us. And, you know, we not only have problems domestically here, but we haven't had a chance to chat about it, but we have so much problems going globally right now. We are entering a new era of global competition, you know, with our competition and our challenges with China and with other countries. This is something I'm deeply worried about. It's a new era of, of global competition. And as a former diplomat, I see that. So our military is so important right now, and we should be proud of our contributions to that here in New Jersey. I hope we're proud of the Joint Base. I hope we're proud of Picatinny. You know, these are elements where we are giving the country the service that it deserves, and I'm proud to support them on the Armed Services Committee. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. Every day, nearly 2 million customers across New Jersey rely on PSE&G to provide natural gas. And every day, PSE&G is committed to doing it safely. That includes making sure you know what to do if you smell gas. A natural gas leak smells like rotten eggs. If you suspect a gas leak, leave your home immediately. Get far away, then call 911. Remember, smell, leave, call. Protect the ones you love. Learn more at PSEG.com slash gas safety. We're now joined by someone who's now uh, in the national news. He's State Senator Declan O'Scanlan, Republican from the 13th Legislative District. How are you doing, Senator? I'm doing really well, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm great. We're taping on the 20th of July. It'll be seen later. I'm not sure if you're going to be national news then, but I will say this. We'll talk about uh, the state budget. We'll talk about the economy. Can we talk about freedom of speech and Twitter? You got taken off of Twitter. I'm not sure. Was it 12 hours, 24 hours? 12 hours. What did you do to get them to throw you off for 12 hours? Well, nothing. Nothing justifiable. Uh, my tweet was perfectly reasonable. Uh, it was an opinion. It was an accurate opinion based on facts. Uh, and What was it exactly about vaccines and COVID? Yeah, look, I've been a va big vaccine supporter. I've encouraged people to get vaccines. I've yeah. organized clinics. It was my office that uh, helped Get, I think we are the first county to make vaccines accessible to every senior uh, and to every teacher uh, in the state. Uh, I'm a big backer, but 
I am also a big believer that our government should not mandate things if it doesn't have to, uh, if there's not a compelling safety reason. And here there's not. We have had amazing voluntary uptake of the COVID vaccine. Also, by the way, it's emergency use authorization as well. So mandating such a, uh, a medication when there's already great voluntary uptake is completely uncalled for. But Senator, even for children, even for children lower, under than under 12, as we speak on the 20th of July, with the Delta variant just sweeping across the nation, really no sense that children should be vaccinated? Because I believe the tweet said something about that, no? No, no, we didn't talk about child vaccinations. I don't think you're going to see child mandatory vaccinations or discussion of it until the, the, the vaccine is fully approved. And I don't think that's going to be until January. The real discussion that was going on at the time was uh, vaccine passports and mandating uh, people get the vaccine before they are allowed to do certain things, adults. What so do you think of that? Just, what do you think about the passports? Uh, I, I think it's uncalled for at this point, certainly in New Jersey. Uh, we have one of the best vaccination rates in the nation, in the world. Uh, we're over 70% vaccinated. If you add in the people that have naturally acquired antibodies, people that had it, of that remaining 30%, we're probably approaching 85% of adults in New Jersey have some level of substantial immunity. You don't have to mandate anything. You don't have to talk about vaccine passports. Uh, it's just, it's, it's gratuitously provocative for those people that have concerns and choose not to get vaccinated. By the way, real quick, uh, Twitter put you back on, and, and you're waiting for an apology. By the time this air, you, you may have gotten and you may not. I don't know. But, but I want to ask you this. Matt, real clear, you, and by the way, we love having you because you always speak your mind. Quick question. In the fall, September into October, should school-aged children under 12 wear masks? Uh, at this point, no, because of our low trans, uh, no, low transmission rate. This isn't a great threat to children. They have proven not to be vectors. Look, but we have to be fair. It's possible that could change if our transmission rate goes, if there's a variant that starts hitting our kids. So we have to be open to that. But right now, people shouldn't worry about their kids going back to school wearing masks. Shift gears. Um, by the way, if you're listening on the radio side, say Senator Declan O'Scanlan, 13th Legislative District. Uh, he knows a lot about uh, fiscal affairs in the state. Uh, give Governor Murphy a grade of his fiscal uh, regarding his fiscal management of state resources. Uh, F. Because and Come here's on. Declan, okay, seriously. Look, okay, uh, look, you know what? Here's what I'll do. I'll give him, I'll give him a, a D plus because he did do what re Republicans requested. The leadership in the legislature and the governor in the, at the end of the day did pay down some debt, did do some things and make a full pension payment and then some. And look, I think they partly did that kicking and screaming because Republicans were pushing and they knew we were breathing down their necks. But on the flip side, we borrowed $4.5 billion that our kids and grandkids are gonna have to repay that we didn't have to borrow, that Republicans warned at the time we didn't have to borrow. Uh, they, we have done nothing to control our budget long-term. There's billions of dollars in this budget that are one-shots that are counting on us maintaining the level of revenue that we had this year, which could easily be an outlier because of the gyrations of the market. So no, no more than a D plus. We should have done better. We should have put more money away. We should be controlling our spending and we should be reforming our long-term fiscal obligations so we can be sustainable. Uh, talk about the governor's track record in terms of supporting small business. Uh, been a disaster. It's been dribs and drabs. Uh, you talk to almost any small business person trying to gain access to the minimal amount of money. We should have done 
three, I had a bill to do 300 million uh, uh, 15 months ago. We would have saved hundreds and hundreds more businesses. Uh, we would have kept people employed. Uh, so it's been a disaster. It's been dribs and drabs, and and the the programs are oversubscribed in 10 minutes. It's that's been a disaster. We could have well, done on much. One Senator, Senator, sorry for interrupting. On one, and on one hand, you talk about it's important to be fiscally conservative. It's important to manage the resources we have and the windfall from the federal government um, from from the COVID dollars federal support, but then give more money to small businesses. Is that okay. a contradiction? Not at all. That's exactly what the money was designed for. You take the money that you get and you put it where it's supposed to go and where it will prime our fiscal pump. We didn't do that. We held on to it. There's still money that we're holding on to. Uh, and, and the governor used it rather than to help small businesses. We used it to, to pay salaries of people that were already budgeted for so, no, it's not inconsistent at all uh, if, if I'm calling to use money exactly as, in, as it was intended to save our economy. You know, I feel like for 20 years, I've, I've been doing this for close to 30, it just makes you really old, but for 20 years we've been talking about, not you, me, uh, we've been talking about school regionalization. There's a school regionalization bill, real quick. What is it? Why is it important? Why is it going nowhere fast? Uh, no, I think it's going to move. I think uh, we, we, we did the... Now, what, what are you saying isn't going to move quickly? The regionalization itself, or we, we passed the bill? Let's just say they've been talking about regionalizing schools for at least two decades. We there are way too many school districts. They're way too expensive. It has a big impact on property taxes. You tell me what's going on. We, we've been our own worst enemy. In many instances, you've had districts that wanted to merge, but our own laws, uh, our own restrictions, our own mandates about uh, dealing with contracts and salaries got in the way. So you'd have, you know, three districts trying to merge, and two out of the three would be big winners. One would be a loser, and they'd kill it. You also would have uh, other um, uh, uh, issues, uh, which we're removing with our new bill. And there's tons of districts that are looking at regionalizing. So hold tight on that. Okay, so you'd have one superintendent instead of three. You'd have not as many administrators, and we're not looking to have people lose their jobs, but it is very expensive. A small school, there are school districts that do not have a high school. There are school districts that I'm not even sure how many schools they even have to have a superintendent, an assistant superintendent, a deputy. It's expensive. Our, our bill will go a long way to solving that and to paving the way for districts that, that, that want to merge and make it easy for them to do it and remove these hurdles to doing so. By the way, how do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, Declan O'Scanlon, at Declan O'Scanlon. Very easy. And by the way, as we speak right now, you are, you, your account is active. It is, yes. Just and check I'm gaining, I'm gaining followers every day. It's wonderful. Senator, my good friend, uh, Declan O'Scanlon, uh, I don't know, are we supposed to say le legislators are good friends? I don't know. I don't know the rules anymore. It's but, okay. Uh, we're allowed. And we're always civil. And you always are. Thank you, Senator. Appreciate Thanks, it. Steve. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. Hi, I'm Joe Roth. In New Jersey, there are nearly 4,000 residents in need of a life-saving organ transplant, and one person dies every three days waiting for this gift of life. One organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. You have the power to make a difference and give hope. For information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org. And be sure to talk with your family and friends about this life-saving decision.
Every day, nearly 2 million customers across New Jersey rely on PSE&G to provide natural gas. And every day, PSE&G is committed to doing it safely. That includes making sure you know what to do if you smell gas. A natural gas leak smells like rotten eggs. If you suspect a gas leak, leave your home immediately. Get far away, then call 911. Remember, smell, leave, call. Protect the ones you love. Learn more at PSEG.com slash gas safety. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by New Jersey Institute of Technology, PSE&G, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, New Jersey Sharing Network, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Choose New Jersey, Fedway Associates, Inc., Operating Engineers, Local 825, St. Joseph's Health, and by these public-spirited organizations, individuals, and associations committed to informing New Jersey citizens about the important issues facing the Garden State. And by Employers Association of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by NJ.com and by Insider NJ. Hi, I'm Joe Roth. In New Jersey, there are nearly 4,000 residents in need of a life-saving organ transplant, and one person dies every three days waiting for this gift of life. One organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. You have the power to make a difference and give hope. For information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org. And be sure to talk with your family and friends about this life-saving decision.